Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 24 through 26. I'll be reading a portion of that text from 1 Samuel 24. It can be found in the Bible and the rack in front of you on page 246. Hear the word of the Lord. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat rocks. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And then the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancients say, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hand. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let them go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever.
me open with a word of prayer. Lord, now would you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, Laura and I woke our kids early one morning and we surprised them that we were going to go to Disney World. Not only were we going to Disney World, but we had to get up really, really early because we were taking a plane to Disney World, which was Luke's first plane ride and Rose's first that she could remember. And then this past year, we didn't surprise the kids, but we said we were going to go back to Disney so that Ruth could could go with us. And unlike last time, we decided to drive to Disney World, which sounded fine to our kids, until we told them how long it would take. And I don't remember who it was that said it. I have a a guess, but pretty soon after that conversation, one of the kids said, what if we took the shortcut? And I had to tell them, unfortunately, that that is the shortcut to Disney World. It's that, that long. That's how long it takes. And I, I so resonate with that question, though. I love finding a back road that saves me like 30 seconds off a 45-minute drive. It's nothing, but it, I still find joy in that. I like turning onto a, a football game halfway through and clicking the button that says catch up through live plays so I don't have to watch every bit of it. I, I heat my food up in a microwave, and then sometimes if I'm just too impatient. I just eat it cold out of the refrigerator that Laura thinks is disgusting, but it's just faster that way. This morning, though, we're going to see that not all shortcuts are the same, right? So it's, it's no big deal. It's inconsequential if we shave a few seconds off a change in directions, but there are a host of other times when the shortcut is a temptation, the shortcut is a way to take matters into our own hands and to not trust the Lord. And that's the kind of temptation that David faces here in chapter 24 that you heard read, but also in chapter 25 and chapter 26. Three different times in these three chapters, David has the opportunity to just take matters into his own hands. And it would make his life so much easier if he did. We get to watch him wrestle with God and what God does to save him from these temptations. So if you want the main point for this sermon and for this passage this morning, it's there on the top of your note sheet. Trust God. Trust God to fulfill his promises and his timing and in his ways. I said each of these three chapters holds out a test for us. I kind of want to show you just in the text You hear that, but also wanted to show a little hint that you get at the beginning of each of these uh, chapters to see that. So if you have your Bible open, you can look at chapter 24, verse 1. We see where this takes place. It takes place in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then flip over to chapter 25, verse 1. David's in a different place, but we're told he's in the wilderness of Paran. Now look over at 26.2. Saul goes to seek David and he finds him hiding out again in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, the wilderness has a really rich history in the Old Testament. Kids, anybody remember what's happened in the wilderness before this? 
what has kind of thing happened to Israel? Jackson, I see that hand kind of going up, so I'm going to call on you. I'm going to say, I can't hear you, so I'm going to say you said the wilderness of Egypt. Very good, yeah. Remember, so in the Old Testament, as Israel is going to the promised land, they are there in the wilderness, and it's there in the wilderness, on the brink of going into the land. They can trust God to fulfill his promise, but they fail at that. And so here we saw Israel fail their test in the wilderness, and we're left now with David right before us. Will David, will he trust God to fulfill his promise? Will he take matters into his own hands? We're going to organize our time around these three tests. I'm going to ask like a key question about each of these chapters. And then at the end of each point, we'll just stop and think about our own lives and say, what is it that we see David doing? How is it that we ourselves can use this chapter in our own lives? And the temptation that we feel to take the sinful shortcut. And I'm praying, I've been praying this week that this sermon would deepen our trust in God's perfect plan. That we would remain patient and be able to trust the Lord's timing. Now, if, if you're a guest with us, we've been in the book of First Samuel now for a while. And for the past several weeks, we've been watching really the, the chase of Saul going after David. David is the anointed king. He has the promise that he will one day be the king of Israel. And he has done nothing throughout all of this to take that kingdom for himself. But Saul has in his mind that David is his sworn enemy. That David is actually lying in wait for him. That's what Saul said last week we saw. He's lying in wait, trying to undo me. And so that brings us here to chapter 24 in this first test and question. And it's this, will David take the shortcut? Will David take the shortcut? You heard Ashley read this, but Saul is chasing David in the wilderness of En Gedi, and David and his men, they're hiding in a cave. And lo and behold, in the providence of God, who comes waltzing into this wilderness cave but Saul, the enemy who has been chasing David. And he comes in to relieve himself. He is now at his most vulnerable. Saul is alone, he is unprotected, and he's caught quite literally with his robe off and his tunic down. And David's men, when they look at this, they say, ah, the Lord's provision. That's the verse four. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it seems good to you. They say to David, look, the shortcut we found the way for you to make it to the king. You can do this. And David does something that we may find a little odd. He, he says, he, uh, the text tells us in verse 4 at the end, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. No sooner though has he done this than we're told that his heart strikes him. Uh, other verses say, other versions rather, say that he was conscience stricken. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now as a modern reader, you read that and think, what's the big deal? He cut off a piece of a guy's clothing that was laying to the side. It feels like, you know, David's men are saying, we should go kill the guy. So maybe it's just David feels like he has a really sensitive conscience if he's conscience stricken by cutting off a robe. But, but here I'd argue that David's conscience is rightly afflicted. It's good that he feels that he should not have done that. 
Because here's the thing, Saul is not just some guy. And that robe that he cut off was not just Saul's bathrobe or something like that. Right? We're told that the, Saul is the Lord's anointed. That's why David says, I cannot do this. He's God's anointed. God had actually put him in that position. Now, I remember in fifth grade, we, my school went to Washington, D.C., and we didn't know, we, we thought we might get a chance to go into the White House. It's not like I was a really political junkie or something like that, but I just knew that the guy who was president was somebody who, who my parents didn't vote for, who, and I probably said something snarky at school, like what I would tell him if we met the president. And my teacher, in her kindest teacher voice, did something that was really helpful for me. She was like, now, I still remember this. If we meet the president, which we're not guaranteed to do, we will treat him with all the respect that the president is due. Not because we agree with him, but because of the position that he has. That's what that's what's happening here, but just kind of on steroids. It's not that Saul was elected as president, but he is God's anointed. God himself had said that he is the king. He is poured oil on by Samuel, and he is the one who is to lead his people. So even if, even though Saul is David's enemy... His position should not be taken lightly. He is not just some dude in the wilderness. And more than that, this robe is a sign of his royalty. We saw this actually back in chapter 18 where Jonathan takes his robe off and gives it to David. It was a sign of David becoming the next king. So David, in cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, here's what's happening. It's not just uh, destruction of property. Okay, it's a symbol David, in doing that, is symbolically saying, I'm going to cut you off. I am going to take your kingdom from you. It would be like a man taking his wife's wedding ring and having it sawn in half. That that doesn't constitute divorce, but it is a pretty weighty symbol. Something of a threat, even. And so here, David did not physically harm Saul, but... This gesture is that kind of threat to him. And the rest of the story, he he realizes in verse 5 and 6 especially, he says, I cannot do this. God forbid that I should treat the Lord's anointed this way. In treating the Lord's anointed this way, I am disdaining what God has done. I cannot take this by force. And so he spends the rest of the time, he says, hey, he withholds his man from attacking and killing Saul. And the rest of the story is this dialogue between David and Saul. And David says, look, I did not do any harm to you. I'm not your enemy. You've come out to chase a dog, a flea, but I'm not the one who is trying to kill you. And Saul, who has chased David, actually agrees. He says in verse 17, you are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So David, though he is tempted to take the shortcut to the throne, to sinfully, wrongfully take Saul's life, he does not. He has to go through more suffering to come. His life would have been so much easier. But he trusts God. says, I don't have to do it that way. Now, we, we are not David. You are not David. You do not have the promise to be king or queen, but I think we face this kind of temptation frequently. Think about some good thing that the Lord holds out for you. Some good thing that you rightly desire, that you long for, 
that God tells you even to look forward to. And then think about what happens when that is slow coming. When it doesn't come as fast as you like or in the timetable that you want it to. So often what happens is instead of waiting patiently for the Lord, we are tempted to short circuit that, to wait and to step even into sin in order to bring that thing to pass for us more quickly. How then, how does this text help us when we are tempted to take the shortcut? Not to wait patiently on the Lord, but to take matters into our own hands. I want to think through two kind of specifics here in this text. And this is what we'll do with each of these texts. So two specifics in this text. First, beware the temptation of the open door. Beware the temptation of the open door. Now, what I mean by that phrase, this is a phrase that you, if you have wanted to make a difficult decision, I've used this phrase before. You could say something like, look, I was trying to decide what to do. Then God opened this door, set circumstances up so that I had to walk through this door. I knew that I should do it. Now, that that phrase is not bad. It's not a bad thing to look at what God providentially allows and brings into our life. But I would want to urge caution. Look, Look what David says in chapter 24, verse 10. In chapter 24, verse 10, David says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. David is actually saying God and his sovereignty did open this door. He brought Saul into the cave. It's an open door. He could put him to death. But the fact that Saul is there doesn't determine what David should do. That makes sense. Just because it's right in front of him doesn't mean he needs to kill him or he has to kill him. That's what the, uh, the servants of David see. And they say, this is what the Lord is doing. You should kill this man. But David says, this is actually a test. This is a test. Think, think about this as a modern day example. So at the end of every service, we pass baskets to give back to the Lord. And kids, maybe you think, you know, I see people doing this and I really want to give to the Lord's work. It's a good thing that God wants us to be able to do. And so you say, I'm going to be praying that the Lord would provide opportunities for me to get money so that I can give to the Lord's work. Now, after church today, you go walk to Martin's Barbecue and you're walking and lo and behold, a wallet right on the sidewalk in front of you. And you reach down and you pick it up and you rifle through first Mr. Corey's ID and all of his credit cards And then you find that thousand dollars that Mr. Corey has been putting in his wallet for some unknown reason. The Lord has provided. Right. But what has the Lord provided? Has he answered your prayer to give that thousand dollars to the church? Or is it a test? Is it a way to say I have to make the right choice? God has opened a door, but. I need to follow the Lord's leanings. I need to do what is right. Now that, that example may be easy to think through, but there are a host of circumstances. Friends, there are so many circumstances where circumstances may feel like God has opened a door for this job, for this relationship, for this thing, and it's hard to know. What should I do? But here's the principle at play. This is from Pastor Dale Ralph Davis. 
He says the Lord's will must be achieved in the Lord's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. In other words, if there's a good thing that God is calling you to, and if there's a way before you that leads through sin to get that, even if you feel like this is God's provision, if it's sinful, turn away. That's a test. That is not God's will. Beware to say, here is the open door. That kind of shortcut leads to folly and not to wisdom, not to life. And ultimately what helps David see and discern is this, should I go this way? What helps David stop and say, I'm not going to step through that door is this theological truth. This is the second way of applying this text. Remember, the Lord will judge. God is the judge. That's what David confesses in verse 12 and verse 15. He has the opportunity. He can, with one fell swoop of his sword, the same sword he uses to cut the robe, he could become judge, jury, and executioner for King Saul. But he's able to let that go because he recognizes that he is not ultimately the judge. God will one day deliver the justice that Saul deserves And he'll give the deliverance that David desires as well. We're we're really tempted to want quick results. I've mentioned how many things, how many things I want to come quickly. But sometimes that desire means we act on our own timeline and not God's. We take up our own means of fixing the problem. Friends, this is a sobering and an encouraging reality. God is the judge. That should sober us to realize that stepping into and stepping through sin, one day you will sit and God will judge that sin. But it also helps us to stop and say, one day God will set all things right. Even that thing that I had to wait so long for, God is working all of that waiting out for his good. And friends, if if you're here with us and you're a visitor, we are glad that you are here this morning. We we proclaim this truth with no shame. God is a perfectly righteous judge. That's part of his very character. And even if you would say you're not a Christian, I hope that thinking about God as judge, you should have something in you that longs for that and that sees that as good news. Every injustice that you have ever seen in the world does not go unaccounted for. God does judge. We should all rightly long for that, but I... I would also tell you that that kind of reality should sober us. If God is judged, then it means he doesn't just judge all of those people out there, the people who are not me, but that I'm actually included in that judgment. And if he is a perfect judge, then the justice by which he reigns and rules, the bar of his justice is not something like, you know what, I look at the best 50% of people and I just kind of say, If you're on this side, you're really good. If you're on this side, we got problems. He doesn't swipe all of our guilt away just by looking at us. That would not be a righteous judge. The bar of God's justice is his own holiness. And if God is a perfect judge, when we come to that bar, we realize that the verdict rendered against all of us is guilty. That you and I do not measure up to that kind of justice. And here's where the message of Christianity, what we call the gospel, is such good news. 
The story of God as judge doesn't just end with him pronouncing condemnation on all of humankind. The story of the gospel is that the judge takes on human flesh in Christ. That he steps out from behind the bench where he judges us. And in Christ, he actually steps into the dock where the defendant stands. That he comes to where we sit And he gives us his own righteousness, paying the penalty for all those who trust in him. Friends, that's that's the story of the gospel. God is our judge, but he's also the justifier. The one who sets right those who trust in Christ. And if you today have not heard that, if you want to think about that, if you feel God is judge and I can wait on justice, but I know that that kind of justice is coming against me as well. We would tell you, you can escape that by finding refuge in Christ. And and I would tell you, please, find me after the service. I would love, I would love to talk to you. Kids, adults, visitors, anyone. If you have questions about what it means to be right with God, find me or find some Christian you came to church with today. And ask them, how can I actually look forward to God being the judge? We want that you to know that above all else. Because it is that, it is that kind of notion, that kind of reality that helps David wait rightly and not take the shortcut. Now, when you turn to chapter 25, we get just like this really quick note at the very beginning. Samuel, who's been a major character, who the book is named after, Samuel passes away. But then we pick up quickly again with David in the wilderness of Paran. You see, Saul and David, kind of at the end, they were like, hey, you, Saul says, don't kill my family. David says, great. Uh, they're still not simpatico. They are, David knows Saul really well. And he knows, you know, Saul's really not been a man of his word. So he's fled a pretty long way to this wilderness. And here he comes across a second test. Okay, the test of twenty-five, chapter 25 is this. Will David become like Saul? Will David stop acting like he has and start acting like a king of the nations around him. Okay, so chapter 25, verse 2, introduces us to a very rich man, and in verse 3, we're told, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. Now, if if you speak Hebrew, uh, and you hear this story in the original language, when you hear the name Nabal, you probably give a chuckle. Because that's just the Hebrew word for fool. So either his parents had very low expectations for him and naming him fool, or this is just a nickname that he's earned throughout his life. He has lived a life of foolishness. Now it's the time for sheep shearing, and if you work all year long looking for like new clothes, the time of sheep shearing is a time of joy for you. And so David sends ten of his messengers to Nabal and says, Hey, this is a feast time, a festal time. You provide provisions for my men. And he doesn't say you just need to do this because you're kind, but there were no security guards. There's no police officers in these days. David has had 600 armed men, and he has been like a shield around the shepherds of Nabal. So he says, this is what I've done for you. Will you give some provisions for my men? But remember the character of Nabal. We're told he is harsh and badly behaved. So it's not that surprising in verse 10 when he responds, not just no thanks, 
but with a selfish and condescending kind of response. So chapter 25, verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? And when David hears this, he is really not happy. Uh, if you have seen any of the skits from Dude Perfect, there's a character called the Rage Monster. This is where David turns into the Rage Monster. He looks around at all of his men and he says, strap on your swords, boys. And then in verse 22, he gets so mad, he makes this kind of vow, this oath. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, at this point, who does David sound like? He he does not sound like chapter 24, I'm going to let the Lord's anointed go. He sounds a lot more like Saul. Remember back in chapter 22, remember there, there was one man, Ahimelech, who helped David. And because of that one man, Saul approved of the destruction of an entire Israelite city. And here, one man, Nabal, acts foolishly towards David. And so now ready is, David is ready to destroy his entire household. And that's, that's the tension you're meant to feel here. David, who has been walking in the paths of righteousness, now is he going to turn out to be a king just like Saul? This is, this is another shortcut. A shortcut not to the kingdom, but to vengeance. And that's a road that Saul has trodden very frequently. Saul has shown himself a vengeful kind of king. Is David going to take that same path? But thankfully, God brings two people into David's life who help, who stop him. One is this nameless young man, someone who hears Nabal's foolish response and goes to Abigail. That's verses 14 through 17. Just take it as a small encouragement. This guy has no name, but his actions are helpful. They do what is right. And so if you feel like you're just nameless and you've got nothing big to play in the part of God's story, God uses little people like this guy. And then the second character we meet is Abigail. Abigail has uh, is wise. She quickly gathers provision for David, sends them on ahead. She comes to David, falls down before him, and she makes this moving speech in verses 24 through 31. And she says, you know what, my, my husband Nabal, this is verse 25, said he is like his name. He is folly. He is foolish. His name is right. And then in her speech, she kind of makes three basic claims to David. We've seen this kind of, these first two we've seen before. She tells David, you are going to be king. God is establishing your house. He is making it come about. And because of that, the second thing, God is bringing down your enemies. Not, not you, but God is cutting down your enemies. And so because of that, the third thing is she says, right now, if you see that God is taking you up and your enemies down right now, what that means is the Lord is saving you from guilt. He's saving you from taking matters into your own hands. And David rightly sees God has provided this. So he tells Abigail, this is verse 32. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David passes the test, even if it's just by the skin of his teeth. He's ready to go annihilate 
Nabal and his household, but he passes. He keeps his hands clean from blood guilt. He does not become the next Saul, but leaves matters to the Lord. And in this instance, the Lord actually answers that kind of quickly. Says, I, I don't have to execute, uh, execute Nabal, but the Lord brings this to completion. This is verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So he told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. God is the judge. That's what David learned in chapter 24 and sees put into action even here. He is the one who takes action. It's what Paul says later in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, there is more at the end, and I'm just going to give a quick aside to here. David passes the test of not becoming like Saul. But, but the end of this chapter shows that David does not pass every test. Okay, the passage ends with David taking Abigail and Ahinoam of Jezreel as his wives. And I'm not going to linger here because the text does not. But this is an instance where we see David resembling the kings of the nations around him instead of the king of Deuteronomy 17. And actually, this is a future sermon, but... David's actions and taking wives for himself will lead to a disastrous turning point in his own kingdom in 2 Samuel 11. Again, we'll talk about that in a sermon in another day, but here we're just reminded David is an honorable king. He does not become like Saul, but he is not a perfect king. He's not the king that we all need. But nonetheless, here we do see he does not take this shortcut to becoming like Saul. He does not take vengeance into his own hands. How then do we avoid the shortcut of taking vengeance, taking something into our own hands? What's specific here in in chapter 24, you see some things that again come into play here. But in chapter 25, we see the good gift that God rescues us by means of one another. God rescues us from our foolishness by the means of each other. Abigail is such a merciful, good character here. David saw that in verse 33. She blesses Abigail and blesses God for sending Abigail. I would just ask you, as you look back on your own life, can you see places where God in his kindness provided someone that kept you from foolishness? God sent someone at just the right time to keep you from rushing into sin. Whether that was a parent, kids, whether that was a spouse, Sometimes parents, the Lord sends a child who says things to us and we go, oh, yeah, that's right. I was just about to do to sin and you reminded me not to do that. For the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, it was Paul. Do you remember that story there? The, the jail opens up. Paul and Silas are in bonds and there's an earthquake. The jail cells open. The bonds fall off. And the jailer says, you know what, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be executed, so I'm going to take my own life. That was the shortcut that he was going to take. But Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. Look, we're all here. 
And the Lord uses Paul to keep that jailer from taking his own life. And more than that, he takes him from the brink of death into the depths of eternal life. I look forward one day to meeting a Philippian jailer in eternity. For a man like Pastor Garrett Kell, it was his friend Reed. I know some of you are reading a, a book by, by Pastor Garrett. Garrett was a pastor. He was uh, planning on planting a church with this friend Reed. But Garrett had this thriving ministry in Texas that was doing so well publicly. But in private, he says he was struggling actively in his own battle with sexual sin. And here's the rest of his story, just kind of in his own words. On, on the eve, the night before flying to New Jersey to film a promo video for the new church, I wrote the letter. I felt that if Reed, his partner, and I were going to work together, I needed to be honest about my past. So I composed an account detailing my sexual sins from the time I'd become a Christian up to that day. That trip to Jersey began an intervention that I believe saved my soul, my marriage, and my ministry. I met Reed at a coffee shop and through tears he said, I love you, brother. But after reading your letter, I don't feel like we can move forward as partners. And to be honest, I don't think you should be a pastor right now. No one has ever gotten in my face like that, or at least I had never listened. Most people were willing to overlook my struggles because of my perceived giftedness or personality, but Reed didn't care about any of that. He loved God, and he loved me. Maybe you have your own story of how God used someone in your life to save you from foolishness, to keep you from the shortcut to even a good thing, planting a church. It says, you know what, you can't take that shortcut. You can't ignore what God is doing. But maybe also consider the ways, not just that God has helped you. But friends, consider that maybe you have been put in someone's life like Reed or like Paul or like Abigail. You have been put in someone's life to courageously call someone from sin. That is, in fact, part of what we commit. If you're a member here at Philadelphia Baptist Church, this is part of what we will say even tonight and as we read our covenant aloud. We will walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another by faithfully and compassionately correcting and encouraging one another as occasion may require. Brothers and sisters, if we want to avoid the allure of sinful shortcuts... The Bible is very clear that we need one another, that we need each other to help us to walk faithfully with God. And if you're a Christian and you're here visiting today, we're so glad you're here. Again, glad that you are here with us on a Sunday morning. But I would just encourage you, if you're a visitor, don't stay on the periphery. Whether it is this church or some other church that preaches the gospel be in community with others who know you, know you well enough to call you to walk faithfully with the Lord. Because that's where safety and security is found, not just in wandering around on the fence of God's sheepfold, but finding safety in the pasture with God's people. We actually have a, a membership class here in a few weeks. If you are interested in joining here, we'd love for you to. If not here, come talk to me or one of the elders. We'll be glad to tell you about other faithful gospel preaching churches in our city. Some that we pray for on a regular basis. It's not that you have to belong here, but we want you to be safe. We don't want you to wander into sin. And God has given us the church. God has given us one another to help us to keep from that. 
Now, there's one last test for David here. Uh, This story in chapter 26 is a whole lot like the one we saw in chapter 24. The the question of if David is going to take a shortcut to the throne is still alive and active. But maybe here's the more particular question. Has David learned the lessons of trust and patience? Did David learn what he should have from chapters 24 and 25? David is now in the wilderness of Ziph. I don't know if you remember the Ziphites, but back in chapter 23, they're the guys who went and told Saul... Hey, David's camping around and we can go take you to him. The Ziphites really just apparently don't like David because they do that exact same thing again. So Saul comes with 3,000 chosen soldiers, select men to come and take David. And David and one of his men, Abishai, decide to go down into the camp at night. Now, verse 12, this is kind of later in the story, but verse 12 gives a hint as to how they can do this. The Lord actually gives a deep sleep onto the camp. And so, so David and Abishai creep all the way through, like, the guards, right to Saul's sleeping place. And here, David faces the same test. This is what Abishai says in verse 8 of chapter 26. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I won't have to strike him twice. But David has learned. David learned the lesson of chapter 24. He cannot put his hand out against God's anointed. He refuses to take the shortcut. He's learned the lesson. And he actually learned the lesson of chapter 25 as well. When when he turns to Abishai and says, we're not going to kill him, look at what David tells him in verse 10 of chapter 26. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In other words, he was able to look at Nabal and say, you know what? I didn't take this matter to my own hands. And the Lord worked things out in ways that I could not even explain or anticipate. And so he says to Abishai, I have no idea exactly how this whole thing is going to work out. I'm not sure what's going to happen if Saul is going to die of old age, if he's going to go into battle and die, if the Lord is just going to strike him dead like he struck Nabal. But God is not without resources. The problem is that God doesn't have options. That's not the problem. God can do whatever he wants in his purposes to bring this about. And so David and Abishai take Saul's spear and water jug and they go a small, uh, actually it says a good distance away because they're not dummies. They go away so they know Saul won't kill them. And David calls out and does the same kind of thing he did in chapter 24. I could have killed you, but I did not. And Saul hears that and responds again, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And this is the parting of David and Saul, the two part ways never to see each other again. Now, there, there are a lot of similarities, again, just in chapter 24. But here, again, what is this chapter selling? How can we avoid taking the shortcut to where we find sin, to the good thing that God promises us through sin? Uh, we'll say it this way. Just imagine. I think what David does here in, in chapter 26, he's imagining all the ways that God can, can fulfill his promises. Uh, sometimes what we suffer from is just a lack of imagination. And I think that's what Abishai does. He says, look, it's right here, right in front of us. Do it now. And David's just content to sit back and say, I mean, it doesn't have to be right now. Think about all the ways God could make this come about. He could do this. He could do that. But I could trust God. 
He'll bring it about in his time and way. I don't have to rush into sin. And maybe at this point in the sermon, if you've been thinking some about your own life, you can already identify the place where you're tempted to take the shortcut. It's a good thing, some good thing that you want to come quickly. Maybe it's an answer to a prayer that you've prayed for years. Or or the end to a particular suffering that you're tired of going through. And there's a way out of it that involves sin. Maybe it's the growth of a church that you love dearly and you want to see grow. And maybe we think about God answering it in a certain way. We can pray that God would answer it this specific way. But this is what Tim Chester confesses. I found this helpful. He says, I often find myself in prayer suggesting to God how he might or even should or must act. But God has options of which I cannot even dream. Friends, if you're there, if you have something that you are tempted to crawl out of, to even sin, that you may get a quicker answer to your prayers, to that desire that you want, I would just invite you maybe this afternoon to take some time And just imagine all the different ways God could answer that prayer. I don't think that's a waste of time. Expand your imagination, your thought of what God can do to intervene. I think you'll see that our God has limitless options to bring about his will. And in that time you'll just see, you know what, I think I would like God to answer this way. But if he does it this way, or this way, or a thousand others, he's able to do it. And I can trust him to do that. Friends, learn the lessons of these chapters. Don't take the sinful shortcut. Trust God. Trust God to fulfill his promises in his time, in his way. Uh, this kind of temptation, brothers, this is, this is universal. If you feel like you're the only one who's ever wanted God to kind of hurry up his timetable, and maybe if you did just kind of fudge a corner, you would hurry it up for him. That's a universal kind of temptation. It was the temptation for Israel in the wilderness who failed. It's a temptation for David in the wilderness who passes, though just barely. And this is a temptation even for the greater Messiah to come, the greater anointed one. This is what Lindsay read earlier for us about Jesus' own journey in the wilderness. This is from Matthew 4, verse 8. The last temptation there for Jesus Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's the shortcut. That's the open door. No need to suffer. No need for a cross before you get the crown. Take the deal. Thanks be to God, he did not take the sinful shortcut. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Friends, when you get to that point of your life, when you get to the good thing that you desire and you're tempted to say, You know what, I can get there faster if I just do this sin. If I kind of manipulate things into this way, I can get there faster. You want to press the fast forward button to get out of suffering and enjoy the pleasures. Remember the lesson in this passage, but also remember that Christ has gone before you. That we have a high priest who is not unable to, who can sympathize with us in our weakness. 
And for those of us who are with him, we follow him from the cross to the crown. And from suffering into glory. So for those who are in Christ, we know the promise that is held out for you is that glory is sure to come. And today it may feel like the night is long. But friends, we're almost home. Don't drop an anchor. We are almost there. And you can trust that God will fulfill his promises. And he will do it in his time and his way. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. That you do fulfill all of your promises. That all of them are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you, God, for the good desires even that you've given us. We know, or many of us even now, feel the temptation to step into sin, to try to bring that about quicker. And so, Lord, would you help us to stand firm? Would you help us to trust you? and know that you are able to fulfill your promises in your time. We ask that you would give us your very patience. And even when, as we suffer and feel alone, you would remind us of our Savior Christ who has gone before us. We pray this all in his name. Amen.